Welcome to the Tone Stone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Dr. Adrian Goldsworthy. Dr. Goldsworthy, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me again. It's, it's nice to be back. Oh, it's my very great pleasure. Um, so today we'll be talking about Dr. Goldsworthy's latest book, Rome and Persia, an account of the 7th century rivalry between Rome and the successive empires of Parthia and Sassanid Persia. Um, it is an enormous theme, a fascinating theme, and one that's not been done before, at least in this epic scale. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So to set the stage, um, when we talk about Persia in the Roman period, um, what regimes and what regions are we talking about in general terms? We're dealing with a very long period of history, but there is remarkable continuity in that essentially you have an empire in the east, in modern-day Iran, Iraq, over as far as Afghanistan, stretching up to the Caspian Sea in the north, various times the Persian Gulf in the south, and the borders of India. So it's this vast area that has been part of other earlier empires, like Achaemenid Persia, and then the Alexander's short-lived empire, the Seleucid Empire. But it becomes Parthian, uh, as we call them. The um, our Sassid Parthian dynasty establishes itself. They emerge late in the third century, and then they start to become a formidable regional power during the second century BC. Now, they last all the way through until the early third century AD, when there's an internal revolution, rebellion by a rival family, the Sasanian Persians, who take over. And then that dynasty rules in one shape or form until the seventh century AD. And it still controls largely the same area. You know, borders move forward a little bit. They move back a little bit. The degree of control that central authority, the, um, the king of kings, as they're called under both regimes, is able to exercise, it changes and varies. But again, that's, that title is important because it, it expresses these. Are, it's not a simple monarchy over one simple mm -hmm. kingdom. It is a supreme king who rules over other regional kings, local rulers, down several tiers. You know, there are people who rule big areas and others who seem to be smaller sections, but who still term themselves kings. There are clan leaders, there are big families. So it's this, it's this mesh of different groups, different organizations, big cities, some of them Greek like Seleucia mm -hmm. on the Tigris, founded by the Seleucids. That's you know, probably one of the the biggest cities in the, the ancient world, certainly the Greco-Roman world. It's probably on a scale with Alexandria, with Antioch, if never quite as big as Rome. This is a really big center of Greek culture and Greek-speaking rule of law, government organization. All of that is, for nearly all its history, under the rule of a Parthian and then a Sasanian king. So although scholars tend to divide the two empires up and make them clearly distinct as the Parthians and then the Sasanians, Essentially, it's the same empire ruled by a different dynasty, but many of the, the key noble families last all the way through. They're there <laughs> when the Parthians arrive, perhaps even some of them before the Parthians arrive, and they're still there when the Sasanian Empire falls, and some of them will still be there under the Arab Kingdom centuries later. Oh, wow. At least clan leaders bearing the same name, like the, the Serenas and the Karin and people like this who have just appear century after century these keep on appearing as the king's key advisors, his key ministers, his key generals. They're always there. Their heartlands in the cases of most of them are much more to the east, nearer Afghanistan, more of Iran proper, um, than the more settled, more um, city-based 
um, organization further west. But it's it's it is essentially the same empire. And although there are changes in the religion, the language, the ceremony, the uh, propaganda between the two dynasties and the Sasanians want to establish their legitimacy by rubbishing their predecessors, the Parthians. (laughs) So, you know, it's a political thing. Sometimes scholars buy into that to the extent where they see them as completely different. It's almost a switch. Mm -hmm. And suddenly in the third century, everything's changed. It isn't like that. The continuity is much, much stronger. All right. So this this empire, this empire that's essentially continuous for uh, the better part of a millennium, um, incorporating what's now, or much of what's now, uh, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and I guess bits of Central Asia, um, confronting um, eventually the Ro- Rome along a long frontier that we'll discuss in a moment. So if we are comparing um, the classical Roman Empire, the empire of say, the second and third centuries um, with Persia, whether Parthia or Sasanian Persia, um, in terms of say population, um, how much larger is the Roman Empire, as far as we can tell, than its Persian rival? It's always very, very difficult to be precise when mm-hmm. you come to population figures, demography in the ancient world, because these the statistics simply aren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, it comes back to basic things. It's, it's availability of water. If you don't have mm-hmm. water, you can't raise sufficient crops to feed animals. You certainly can't raise sufficient crops in the quantity to feed a large population of people. So if you look at the Roman Empire that is... Western Europe, it's North Africa, it's um, the the Middle East, Turkey, Judea, Egypt. These are areas that have far more rainfall or are fed by rivers that supply a more reliable, predictable supply of water. It's an area that's greener mm-hmm. when, when all said and done. More of it is greener, more of it can be cultivated. It has Although it has areas with severe climates like the Sahara Desert on the fringes or the cold of winters in Central Europe, nevertheless, they're not, there's not such a variety of extremes as when you go to the Parthian Sasanian Empire in the east, where you have true desert. You have large mountain ranges with very limited availability other than in the valleys of land where you can farm, where you can support a population. So what we can say definitely is the Roman Empire is not so much larger in terms of square miles of territory, though it is bigger, um, but much larger in population. Now, mm-hmm. the, the figure that tends to get repeated again and again these days in the textbooks for population of the Roman Empire under, say, Hadrian or Antoninus Pius in the second century is about 60 million. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't terribly good basis for that. I suspect, personally, that the population was actually higher in those periods, though it probably drops after successive plagues. And I think... When you look at the number of settlements that keep being discovered by field walking by archaeologists in so many regions, that to assume that the same population has sort of moved its village every generation <laughs> or so seems unlikely. I think there's just a lot more people around than we tend to think. And many of the, um, from having been in the past far too positive about the Roman Empire and saying, well, they're so modern, they're so civilized, you know, the sort of Edward Gibbon, mm-hmm. if you, you know, the most blessed time to be alive right, right. Um, before the 18th century is under the Romans. We've gone the other way in that some of the estimates on population, particularly we're looking at UN life charts and this sort of thing, that they were comparing the Romans to the early Neolithic rather than to other periods of the ancient world. They, mm-hmm. they went particularly harshly on the Romans and said, oh, well, everybody lives in cities, so they're all dying of dirt and disease and plague all right. the time. And you know, they, they bring out the anecdotes of, of um, bodies floating in the Tiber and uh, this sort of thing. 
But those are anecdotes told because they're exceptional, because they were supposed to shock, not because this is, oh, yeah, you know, there's, there's just dead people everywhere <laughs> all the time. Um, so I suspect the Roman population is bigger. You're even more into guesstimate territory when you look at the, um, the Parthian and the Persian Empire. And some of the best statistics come from earlier, from Seleucid census and tax returns, from Achaemenid Persian records, the few traces we've got of that. The population could have been 10 times larger in the Roman Empire. It might only be five times larger. Um, as I say, the Parthians and the Persians have some very, very large cities that apart from in the Roman Empire, only the Chinese could boast of anywhere bigger. Because apart from Seleucia, you have Tessiphon founded by the Parthians, you have Babylon is still flourishing for much of the period. Some of these truly ancient cities are still there as well as the more recent foundations. Um, generally speaking, the pattern is that there are more cities in what had been the heartlands of the Persian, particularly the Seleucid Empire. Um, and there is there are still those Greek colonies that Alexander had founded that, that survived for quite a long time. But you get, you know, you get them in Bactria, you get them in these kingdoms that are on the fringes that are sometimes Parthian or Persian and sometimes not. Mm -hmm. But more of the population is dispersed. But it isn't, there's always this sort of simplistic way, oh yes, you know, um, the Romans have all the greenery and the Parthians and Persians have a desert. And of course, it isn't like that. A lot of this is steppe land. Some of this is quite fertile. And one of the big features you see under the Parthians and the Persians, as with any successful organized regime in this region, is the focus on irrigation and engineering to do with water use, water control, which allows you to farm larger and larger areas of land and therefore support a bigger population. So the, the population probably increases in the good times when the Parthians and the Persians are around, when the country is stable, when the king is able to put the manpower to maintaining these irrigation systems, to expanding them, in the same way that periods of stability in the Roman Empire and periods without major epidemics probably have a higher population, a better, more flourishing economy. But it, it's always the big problem. You come to look at the ancient world and you want to understand these questions and it's worth asking them, but you cannot get precise answers hmm. because the data just isn't there. Yeah. And that's probably all we can say, I suppose, that hmm. there's more people in Roman because there's more rainfall and it's larger in yeah. that sense, but otherwise the big shrug. Hmm. Um, and ask a hopefully somewhat more answerable question. Hmm. If we compare Rome and Persia in terms of political organization, obviously the Roman Empire, it changes over this vast span of time, uh, becoming gradually, we, we say at least, more centralized, more autocratic to some degree. But it, it's a, a, an imperial framework founded on a great network of city-states, essentially. So you have cities that are governing themselves and paying taxes to, answerable to a Roman bureaucracy. Um, and it seems that in Parthia and then the Sasanian Persia, you said there's these these, uh, these gaggles of kings. You have a king of kings and then regional kings and clan leaders below him. So if we were to do, make some sweeping and perhaps somewhat misleading for that reason, um, generalization to compare these two regimes, um, how might we do so comparing empires in terms of government? Well, obviously, you've always got to start by saying we have far more evidence for the Romans mm -hmm. and their understanding of the world, their system, their history. One of the nice things about doing a book like this is that you do get some sources from another perspective, from a different people looking at the Roman Empire and seeing it in a different way to the ways we're accustomed to see it. But while that is there, it is still dwarfed by the amount of information we get mm -hmm. for the Romans. So 
there may well have been more change, more development for the Parthians and the Sasanians than we're able to trace. And I certainly think there is a great tendency that quite late Sasanian institutions are sort of projected backwards. Mm. So that, again, it's this, this switch is pressed. Suddenly the Assassin Parthians have gone, <laughs> the much more dynamic Sasanians are there, and everything's great. Everything's more bureaucratic, <laughs> everything's more organized, everything's more efficient. Mm. It doesn't, I, I don't, don't buy that. It doesn't make sense. And I suspect um, the change is actually more gradual. I mean, the big change from the Roman perspective is obviously from the Republic to the um, the imperial system, whether mm. the Prince of Spain under Augustus or the Dominating Tetrarchy and all the others later on. Um, that's the first century almost of contact between Parthians and Romans um, begins in that last century of the Republic at a time when the Republic is under great strain. You know, it's, it, the, there's a, a nice coincidence that Sulla is the first Roman general to encounter a Parthian representative in any formal sense. And Sulla is the first dictator, the first man to march his legions on Rome. You know, Rome is unpredictable, chaotic, turned against itself, um, which makes it much harder for the Parthian king of kings, who sometimes has his own problems with civil wars, but nevertheless to deal with the Romans, because you don't know who's actually in charge or who's going to be in charge next year and the year after. It, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it comes back, a, a classic example is always Cleopatra, who is staunchly loyal to her Roman allies following the Ptolemaic tradition all the way through her life, but keeps ending up on the wrong side in civil wars. <laughs> right. you know, there's, becomes depicted as this great enemy and threat to the Roman people and to the Ro Rome's Republic, but has actually always followed the treaties, done what she's asked to do <laughs> by the Roman who happens to be dominant in that area. Right. It's even worse when you're outside the whole system and you're looking in and you don't know whether a treaty you've made with a Pompey or with a Caesar is going to be honored because... Who knows who's going to right. be around? So in one sense, creating the Principate and Augustus becoming the first emperor makes Rome a little bit more like the Parthians, more understandable from their point of view, so that there is, there's more stability, there's more continuity of, of decision-making with the Romans. But again, there is a completely different tradition. As you mentioned, Rome is this world of city-states, and Rome itself, the Republic, and Augustus claims to restore the res publica. It's this idea that, yes, okay, I do have supreme power and I do control the army, but I'm play-acting the part of the servant of the state. And this convention remains very important for a long time. And although it, it gradually changes, and everybody, you know, you've only got to read Tacitus or Suetonius, to know with that gloomy sense that they can see, yes, this is a monarchy. It's got all the palace conspiracies you could possibly ask for, just like every other monarchy that we we and the Greeks have always written about and disdained. Nevertheless, that pre pretense is maintained, which is a different sort of relationship that a king of kings needs to have with um, his lesser kings and with mm -hmm. his subjects and with the different groups. I mean, that's the other thing. There's perhaps greater diversity for the Parthians and Persians between a community like Seleucia and a tribe like the Karen in the east with their hereditary leaders. But also, you know, you get these interesting snippets from Josephus and the like in Babylonia in that area, the huge Jewish community mm -hmm. that partly runs itself and its own affairs and that until AD 70 is every year sending people to sacrifice at the key festivals they're going you know there are big delegations donations to the temple in jerusalem going for passover this sort of thing mm. so you have people who are part of a, a world outside your empire and outside your authority with completely different traditions in the same way the babylonian temple cults are 
keeping their astronomical observations. They're still doing their, their rituals. Their way of thinking about the world is, is perpetuated. So there may well be a greater diversity in for the Apathian and Sasanian king of kings to deal with, which means they, they do things in a different way. They also have geography that, that mm -hmm. influences everything. You know, it's harder to move around long distances. The Mediterranean Sea smack bang in the middle of the Roman Empire is a problem in some ways and that the weather can be bad, but it also means communication can be very quick mm -hmm. and trade can be very quick and more intimate than it, it is with the long distance trade you have coming through the Parthian Empire and the, the Sasanians later on. So there are fundamental differences, but we always have this problem that most of the information comes from a Greek or a Roman perspective. So, for instance, we have this story, again, with the, the first contact where Sulla has the king of Cappadocia and a Parthian envoy, and they all come for this public meeting in the way a lot of ancient diplomacy is at least officially done, you know, like the, mm -hmm. the formal right. photographs of people sitting in a room in the White House <laughs> and the shaking of hands at various things, the different, you know, two podiums, this sort mm -hmm. of thing. Um, all of this rhetoric of, of power is different in the ancient world, but it's there. Plutarch tells us this story, and he's the only one to go into any great detail. It's not that great about what happens when Sulla meets the Parthian envoy. And Sulla is supposed to set out three chairs. He sits in the middle, Cappadocian king on one hand, the Parthian envoy in the other. And then Plutarch claims that the Parthian goes back to the court of the king of kings, who's displeased because he's been displayed himself as not the Roman's equal and has the man executed. <laughs> now there is this deep, deep tradition that kings who tend to be equated with tyrants are corrupt, they are evil, they're rapacious, they're you know, sexually active, and they're murderous. You know, they're deeply paranoid, suspicious of everyone. So is this just a Greek telling a story that he half understood? Mm -hmm. That, um, because on the face of it, you'd think, well, you know, this man's sitting the same level as a king, that's not bad. He isn't the king of kings in person. And if there's three of you, well, you know, how, unless you arrange yourselves in some sort of neat triangle, how are you going to <laughs> avoid the fact of somebody right. being in the middle? It doesn't seem a major humiliation. So is it Plutarch's picking this up because some source said this Parthian was executed, but he doesn't really know why and doesn't understand court politics? Had the man done something else wrong? Is this simply some of the ample propaganda that was directed against Sulla by all his rivals? Because mm -hmm. it's the sort of thing you'd get in Cicero's speeches. You know, if he doesn't like the man he's talking about, then right. this person has gone out humiliated and robbed all the provincials <laughs> and look at the trouble this is called for the raised publica and the disgrace to our, mm -hmm. you know, our good name, our few days, all this sort of thing. Or um, if you did like them, then it's showing, you know, proper Roman pride and <laughs> self-respect. You cannot let these barbarians treat you as an equal. So... So many of the little stories where we, we think we're getting a glimpse into just how power struggles work, how the pecking order works within the royal court, are very, very difficult to interpret. And as I say, so many of them come from that outsider's perspective of a Greek or a Roman who's disdainful anyway, you know, who sees these people as barbarians because everyone who isn't Greek in the end is a barbarian. And okay, they're a bit more civilized than others, but they're still not us. Right, right. So um, it's, it's, it's hard to... Appreciate, but the, the, the striking thing is there, there is a, a gradual change over the centuries in that Augustus treats the Parthian king of kings with great respect, but he will send his adopted son to meet with the Parthian king. He doesn't go himself. So whilst there's a, a measure of equals, you could then say, well, actually, but I'm not there. This is just my son. This is just a you know, general of the Roman people. But over time, you start to get, by the fourth century, the Roman emperor will be referring to the Sasanian king of kings as, uh, as brother. 
And later on, you have this whole rhetoric that is based around almost equality on each side. You know, each side in the end thinks, well, we're really better, you know, <laughs> but the Romans from Persian perspective are less bad than everybody else in the world because they have the rule of law, because their emperor is a decent man. You know, he tries to do things. Okay, he's not us. He's not a Persian. He doesn't really understand. He doesn't follow the true faith, but, you know, it's better than just a plain tribal leader somewhere. And the Romans are doing the same thing to the point where later on, you know, you have this sixth century document with incredibly detailed um, procedures and ceremony for how a Persian envoy will be treated on his journey until he gets to the court at Constantinople, how he's introduced, even the little things like, you know, the emperor's advice to sort of ask after the good health, of <laughs> not just the king of kings, but anybody else he's met and vice versa. You know, it's, it's very much, you can see the, um, the sort of the good manners of um, diplomacy for mutual benefit. The Romans don't treat anybody else like that. And as far as we can tell, the Persians don't treat anybody else quite like that. So it, it's each side is able to see similarities and there there is more similarity as time goes on. The states seem to become more and more alike in so many respects, perhaps particularly once the Western Roman Empire has gone and the Eastern Empire is still has a larger population, but geographically is very similar in size mm -hmm. uh, to the, the Persian Empire. And it, 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 there's that sort of sense that, okay, you know, let, let's face reality. And whilst in our own propaganda and our proclamations for a home audience, we can say how great we are and how wonderful it is the Persians are submissive to us, and the Persians are saying exactly the same thing about the Romans to their home <laughs> audience, in reality, you acknowledge that, well, you know, we can't do that. We've got to be far more polite to them. Oh, well, that's fascinating. And there's some uh, court panegyric later about them, maybe the two eyes of the world, right? You know, Rome and Persia, and, and the chapter title, I think. And uh, it is fascinating how the, these two seemingly very fundamentally different states um, at least acknowledge each other as the enemies they know, and in that sense are, you know, at least able to be dealt with diplomatically. Uh, and that's the advantage of a monarchy in one sense, right, right. that there is one person making decisions policy decisions, you know, they'll get all sorts of arguments over whether or not ancient states do have policies mm -hmm. and all this sort of thing. But in a very broad sense, there's continuity because one person tends to have a character, they tend to have the same ministers be influenced by them. There are fewer radical shifts, whereas when you have two new consuls elected every year, mm -hmm. both eager for glory, both eager, let alone when you have a, a democratic Athens at its height where the assembly can just say, no, we're <laughs> going to do completely the opposite of what we did yesterday. Right. You know? it's, it's much harder to know what, how, what you're dealing with and to, to anticipate their move. So that, that they become both two empires that are strong, military, aggressive, but also led by, in at least a broad sense, similar political regimes does make the other one easier to understand, predict, and then mm -hmm. deal with. Hmm. So, so thinking about how these dealings worked, um, at least in, in geographic terms, so it seems like almost all conflicts between Roman Parthia, Roman Persia, um, take place in the same theaters. Either it's in the highlands of Armenia um, or essentially somewhere north of Mesopotamia, you know, in the headwaters, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, why are these frontier zones so pivotal and it's seemingly so static century after century? It's interesting because, in a sense, these are the frontier falls not where it had fallen in the Seleucid period. Mm -hmm. you know, the Seleucids control the lands on both sides. So, and because there are far more cities in all of these regions, and particularly in Mesopotamia and further south down the Tigris Euphrates valleys, and of course further west into Syria, you know, this is, is a very, perhaps the most densely urbanized part of the ancient world. 
but part of it's in the Roman Empire, part of it's hmm. in the Parthian and then Persian Empire. You know, the, there would be a, seem to be a logic, a similarity between the cultures, the way of doing things, that these ought to have been under one regime. Though, of course, that logic rather denies the, the independent spirit of the city-state system and that they, <laughs> don't, they don't naturally come together as nations. You know, <laughs> it usually takes someone to force them. So um, just because you speak a similar language and you understand, you know, the Greeks in Seleucia could get on with the Greeks in Antioch quite well, there's not that different, doesn't mean they want to be ruled by the same person mm. um, or the same state or be part of it. So we, we have to be a little careful. A lot of it comes down to where the border ends up, you know, both empires have had their expansionist period. The Parthians expand hugely in the second century BC, a little bit in the first century, uh, early part of the first century BC as well. And then after that, they seem far more prone to civil war than <laughs> been the case before. And it might mm -hmm. simply be that because you've had a succession of kings who have taken more than one wife, who've also had um, as is so often the case in this region, the harem, which mm -hmm. has all these concubines of various status, some very close to wives, some able to be recognized as wives, who are often the daughters of the nobility. You know, so it's a way of cementing political alliances and giving influence, because if someone can influence the king of kings, then you know, that's useful. Um, there are just far more Arsacid Parthians around <laughs> with a claim to it. Both the Sasanians and the Arsacids manage almost exclusively to convince everyone that only someone of the bloodline can become king of kings. And the same way the Ptolemies do in Egypt. You know, mm -hmm. there aren't rival claimants from outside the family. And that's quite an achievement. You've made something special, some special link with the divine, some blessing on that family. But then the problem is that um, rivalry tends to get focused in the family. And if you have lots of children, mm -hmm. which they tend to do, then there's far more candidates out there. And this whole disparate nature with the regional kings was, that are sometimes your brothers, your uncles, your relatives, um, and the different noble families that all are ambitious for power, it can make sense for someone to back someone else. And you can also upset the lobby interests that exist. So Parthia is going through a period of instability at much the same time as the Roman Republic is going through its period of tearing itself apart in civil wars. Augustus comes in, and although he expands hugely in Europe, you know, he pushes to the Atlantic coast in Spain. He pushes to the Rhine, to the Danube. Yes, you have the expedition to Arabia, but they don't stay. You push mm -hmm. in Egypt a little bit more. You tidy things up in North Africa. Overwhelmingly, he doesn't embark on major conquests in the Eastern Mediterranean. And overwhelmingly, he continues that Roman reluctance to directly rule the area. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like provinces if he can avoid them. If there's a client monarch who can do the job for you, then good, leave it to them. You know, it's just too complicated. It's too much trouble. Let's, let's stay out of this. Hopefully this will work. This will be more stable. So there is an, a sense where, you know, you have in sources like Plutarch and others, the Parthians supposedly asking for the Euphrates to be the boundary between the two empires. Hard to know whether there's any real basis to that and whether if there is, the Romans really accept that because... Mm -hmm. You've always got this conflict between the rhetoric of, you know, imperium sine fine, uh, empire power without limit, of the praise for glory, for expansion, for conquest. You know, these are the greatest things someone can do to serve the Roman Republic. And similar boasts you get, at least in the Roman sources from the Parthians and then the Persians, that they intend to inherit the entire Achaemenid Persian mm. Empire. You know, they will push to the Mediterranean coast. That is ours. That is ours by right. Um, it's both regimes boast. They talk about what they're going to do, what they're going to conquer, that no one is their equal. 
But Augustus seems to have this very pragmatic approach to uh, the Parthians, doesn't want to fight a major war, doesn't want to invade them, um, and makes great play of returning the eagles lost by Crassus by Mark Antony, and they're brought to Rome, and they're eventually put in the Temple of Mars Ultor, Mars the Avenger, but it's done through forceful diplomacy. You know, you send an army and you threaten, but in the end you talk and you agree. And the Parthians are suitably submissive, and hence you can have a Parthian arch in the forum and all this sort of thing. Um, but the boundaries settle in these areas, and it is, broadly speaking, near the Euphrates. Armenia is a difficult area for anyone to rule, most especially the kings of Armenia, but it's even, <laughs> in some ways, you know, it's even worse. Everybody thinks, well, I can go in there and I can sort it out. But again, it's a landscape. You know, it's, it's, it's very rugged territory. It's very hard to reach a lot of the valleys where the, the noblemen, noble clans will have their strongholds. The wars tend to happen in the same places because these are the natural routes to get from one empire to another. Mm -hmm. So there, there are only really a couple of ways through Armenia. You can go west-east or you can go north-south, but you can't really go diagonally very easily across it. There are only some places where it's relatively easy to cross the Euphrates, again, depending in part on the time of year. So, you know, so many Roman expeditions start at Zugma, the old Seleucid city, and they mm -hmm. will cross there. Um, that's where the, the bridges eventually put in place. Um, there are other bits where you can, but it's much harder with a major army. And you don't just have to get the army across. You've then got to feed it. You've then got to move it. Mm -hmm. Although the armies are very different, these are problems for both sides. And as a result, the border areas are quite focused. The areas of potential conflict, unless somebody breaks through that and goes into the heartland, whether it's the, the Parthians going into Syria, going into Judea, not going into Asia Minor, though their Roman ally Labienus will in, in 40 BC. Um, they seem to sort of draw a halt there, which, which makes you wonder, are they actually thinking, well, this is what the Seleucids had, this is what the Persians mm -hmm. had, we're not, not going any further, or is it more a practical thing? They've, they've reached the limit of their resources at the time. And the Romans will occasionally get through Mesopotamia and push down the, the Tigris-Euphrates. But otherwise, they are very constrained by, partly by geography, but it's also by this question of overall restraint that each side each side shows in its conflicts with the other that we'll we'll talk about a bit later mm -hmm. well that's fascinating and thinking about how again how geography conditions so much of what happens politically you know besides just the, the ideology and the realities of empire so to focus on the first and in many ways the most famous um, of the roman persian clashes um, the battle of Karai, um, where Crassus and his army are annihilated, essentially, um, in, in a famous encounter um, in, I guess it's now uh, Iraq. Um, can you briefly just explain why Crassus was defeated so disastrously at Karai? Um, and whether this battle is remembered as distinctive or decisive in any way by both sides? It's certainly remembered as decisive by modern scholars. Right. Everybody makes a big deal about the Battle of Carhai, and it's it's where the Roman legionary who sort of, you know, stood on his two feet and carved out the empire with his gladius meets his match in the, the fast-moving Parthian mm -hmm. horse, horse archer who dodges away and shoots even as he retreats. You know, it's <laughs> nice and simple. Um, it's much more complicated than that. One of the things people tend to forget is that Carhai is the only pitched battle, for want of a better term, between Romans and Parthians that is described in any detail in our sources. In nearly three centuries of conflict, lots of battles, no other battle is described in that, that way. The fullest account is in Plutarch, which differs in many ways from the rather more impressionistic Cassius Dio account. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, you know, has a more logical coherence about it. But again, this is Plutarch who, you know, in his life of Alexander says, well, I'm not going to go into the military detail in too much, too much. I'm more interested in character. And of course, that's a, a key feature. There's a sense of, of tragedy, um, you know, in the whole story that Crassus is this, this tragic hero who's simply doomed mm -hmm. from the start. And he's just making the wrong choices at every stage to the point where you even have him being, his head being thrown onto the stage and oh, used right. as a prop in a performance of the Bacchae, uh, where the, the king of Armenia and the king, king of kings of Parthia are sitting down and celebrating their new treaty. So, you know, it's, it's, there is a lot of rhetoric in that account, but it is the only account of a pitch battle. And that's important to emphasize because it, we use it as the typical meeting, mm. and yet it probably isn't. It is the first encounter. And you get the impression, even in, in Plutarch and to some extent Dio as well, that neither side really knows what to expect of the other. The Parthians have been incredibly successful creating this empire in the East, but they have not come up against a predominantly infantry army since they defeated the Seleucids over a century ago. So no one has living memory. No, no one has real experience of dealing with something like the Romans that weren't the same as the Seleucids anyway, but they, they have a different approach to how armies work. They're different tactically. And similarly, the Romans have been going around conquering everybody. They think they know what the Parthians are like because they've defeated Armenians and Mithridates of Pontus and armies like this. So they've met cataphracts before and think, well, okay, we can, we can sort them out. We can outmaneuver them. They've met them when they're led by somebody like Lucullus or Pompey, who's a lot more... Um, not fresher, a lot more able. Crassus is, is an old man by the standards of Roman commanders. He's past his best when he arrives in Carhai. But even so, there are elements when you look closely at what the battle, what actually happened. It's, it's not this simple, well, the Romans can't catch the Parthians and they're just all shot down by arrows and everybody dies. <laughs> in the first place, the battle seems to turn into a stalemate. The Parthians expect to be able to ride the Romans down and they can't because the Romans won't run away and let themselves be ridden down. So the horse archers start to bombard the um, the Roman, the large hollow square that Crassus's army forms. They weaken the Romans. The Romans have trouble striking back. Crassus doesn't have many archers, many slingers. Javelin men run out, try to catch the the horse archers, but it's you know it's it's a pretty dangerous game. They tend to suffer far more. Lots of people are probably being wounded rather than killed because a Roman legionary with his big shield is quite well protected. But he's sort of crouching down. He's obviously, it's like an infantryman under bombardment today. It's not very nice to have somebody keeping on hitting at you and you can't do anything back. But they're not being defeated in the sense that it's a stalemate. The Romans can't catch the Parthians. The Parthians can't destroy the Romans to the extent where they can break them down, ride them down with their cataphracts. Another thing that, again, people misunderstand, and even, I'll freely admit, I've done it in the past. You will find most accounts of Carhai will say that, will give Crassus something like 40,000 Roman legionaries, maybe 50,000. And they will say that the Serenus, the, the Parthian commander, has 10,000 men. Hmm. So the Parthians are hugely outnumbered and win. Unfortunately, that's not what Plutarch says. Plutarch says that the Serenus has a personal entourage of 10,000 cavalrymen, 1,000 cataphracts, the rest horse archers who accompany him. He at no point says that these are the only Parthian troops at the battle mm. because he also mentions that at least one other regional satrap is there, presumably with men of his own. So people start to think, oh, yeah, you know, the, these, Roman, these Parthians are sort of five times more effective than the Roman legionary. <laughs> and Crassus probably doesn't have anything like that many men because he's left garrisons behind, campaigns been going on, his legions weren't at full strength in the, in the first place. So the armies are probably closer in size than we actually expect. The Parthians are bombarding the Romans. The Romans aren't going anywhere. 
Crassus's son, Publius Crassus, who gets a very good write-up in Caesar's commentaries. He's served there as a sort of dashing cavalry commander, a commander of some independent expeditions, um, and who's won through boldness and has arrived with some Gallic and German cavalry to reinforce the ones um, Crassus has got. He then attacks. He drives off the Parthian horse archers and chases them away. And this is somewhere where people, again, tend to not think of the obvious. This takes time. And Publius Crassus moves to a point where he is out of sight of Crassus and the main army. So you're talking several miles, even with a rolling landscape. This is some distance. He also takes with him the equivalent of about seven cohorts of legionaries. So he doesn't just gallop off doing a, you know, sort of general custer at Little Bighorn <laughs> on his own. This is quite a large force, but it is, again, like Little Bighorn, not all of it can see everybody else. And the Parthians give way, and it's only eventually when they realize how small this Roman detachment is that they start to rally. Perhaps troops that are fresh are waiting. They surround Publius Crassus and destroy him. Now, Publius Crassus has time to send messages back to his father. The first few don't get through, but eventually one does, asking for help, because Crassus sits there. He does not move. He lets part of his army, a small detachment, go off and vanish over the horizon. Most of the Parthians pull away from where he is, and he simply sits there and waits. He doesn't make a decision. You have to wonder, because when a few years later, Mark Antony will move for advance on the Parthians, mm -hmm. they keep retreating. They don't want to be in a stand-up slugging match with the Romans. But when they have such overwhelming numbers on their side, they can surround, defeat Publius Crassus, and eventually shoot down most of his men. He commits suicide, along with several of his officers. And then the Parthians turn up, and then they inflict more damage on Crassus and the main army, because clearly... Everyone's despairing. You've just seen half your you know, detachment wiped out. Publius Crassus is dead. His head's mm. being paraded in front of you. Plutarch gives Crassus a brief moment of sort of you know, rejuvenation where he rides around saying, look, this is a personal tragedy. Don't despair. This is for me to deal with, but your Romans will still win mm. before he goes back into a black mood and puts a blanket over his head or his cloak over his head and just sort of can't cope. But again, the Romans suffer serious losses. They are not destroyed in battle by the Parthians. Most of the Roman army is still there. They have a lot of wounded. But Crassus despairs, decides to retreat. And again, an infantry army, predominantly infantry army with all its baggage, is going to have trouble escaping from the mobile Parthians. The Parthians are very good at pursuit. And they do hunt them down. But the Romans make a shambles of it. You know, they get lost. They go in the wrong direction. Some people like Cassius, the man who's later going to murder Julius Caesar, gallops off with a detachment after a while, you know, and gets back to Syria and I'm all right, Jack, and takes over there and rallies <laughs> things. But, you know, this is clearly a slightly embarrassing thing. It takes a while to rehabilitate himself. Are you the hero or have you abandoned right, your, right. Um, your proconsul? Um, so Crassus is eventually killed negotiating with the Parthians and perhaps a fifth, perhaps a quarter of his army eventually manages to straggle back into Syria. You know, there's enough to make a couple of small understrength legions that get there, and some of those might be from the garrison. So most of the Roman army is destroyed. This is an appalling defeat. A lot of them are taken prisoner, but it is a defeat over the course of several days. It isn't a simple, tactical, overwhelming victory for the Parthians. Mm -hmm. And this is one reason why Carhai isn't typical, because later battles, which are not described, the Romans will confront the Parthians and hammer them in, in pitch battles. So Something has changed, which we don't know about so much. So there are Crassus's mistakes. The Parthians fight an extremely good battle. One thing that Plutarch cites and is often sort of given as this shows how either how organized Parthian armies are altogether, which is 
probably true, or for some people, how, how great a commander the Serenus was, that he has a camel train of spare arrows coming up to replenish the stocks of the horse archers as they run out. But both Plutarch and Dio suggest that by the end of the few days of pursuing that the Parthians are running out of arrows. And if you think about it, compared to modern ammunition, arrows are bulky. Mm -hmm. And if you look at medieval court records of English armies going to France in the Hundred Years' War, you know, there's great care taken to get as many sheaves of arrows as you possibly can, but you can't carry that many. The probability is archers can shoot very, very fast. If you're good, and all the, the later Arabic manuals about horse archery suggest that you know, most of these people, they are very good indeed. They work by deluging the enemy, especially a formed enemy like the Romans, with lots and lots of missiles. But you are going to run out quite mm. quickly. So yes, you can fight more than one battle, which Serena's army probably does, but you can't fight a really long campaign of three or four battles without having to go back and get new stocks. You know, it's, it's logistically mm -hmm. impossible. So Kai is far more complicated, doesn't quite mean all the things it's cited to mean, but it's a big deal for modern scholars. It's a fairly big deal for Augustus when mm -hmm. he's showing how much better he is than Mark Antony, that he will avenge Crassus. He will avenge Crassus and Mark Antony, but he'll do it through strength. He's so mighty, Rome is so mighty, that he doesn't need to fight the Parthians because they just submit. So it becomes a big deal, and that's why you get all the stuff in Horace and Virgil and the mentions mm -hmm. later on. But it's hard to say that it's a big deal for centuries to come, that the Romans keep going back to it. This isn't a defeat like Cannae, or Arousia, where they were destroyed by the Cimbrian Teutones, that are much bigger. You know, the losses there are several times higher than at Carhai. And if you look at what's going on with the Roman army in the first century BC, there are battles on a similar scale, and the defeats on a similar scale to Carhai on other frontiers, on the Danube, in Gaul, elsewhere, that don't get the publicity. Mm. So partly it's because we know what's going to happen. The Romans will never conquer the Parthians, nor will the Parthians conversely ever conquer the Romans. And the border will stay very much, broadly speaking, where it is. Although, in fact, the Romans are going to keep creeping forward mm -hmm. for quite a while. So Carhai becomes significant in a way that it probably shouldn't be. A little bit for the Romans, far more for modern scholars. And that's why mm -hmm. it's worth, I, I go into more detail on this than any battle, as I say, partly because we don't know about any other battle. You're really talking Procopius in the 6th century AD with his account of Dara or Callinicus, where you get narratives that are as detailed as the descriptions of the fighting as Carhai. All the wars in between, we don't know why the Romans lost, why the, mm -hmm. the Parthians or the Persians lost on other occasions. It, it's, it's so so it, it, Carhai is allowed to fill this vacuum, but it isn't mm -hmm. typical in any respect. Hmm. Yeah, that is. I guess it's so often ancient history, the nature of our sources, you know, mm. prejudice what we say about, you know, an entire periods. You wonder how much it's almost like a, a Tudorberg forest, where it's a decisive battle, but it's because we know the upshot that it becomes so, it looms so large in historical memory. Yes, exactly. As I say, the, you know, it happens, the accounts for the, the wars against the Cimbri and Teutones mm -hmm. are poorly documented. Right. You know, it's, it's fragmentary. You've got little bits of, of Marius' eventual victory. But those losses are appalling, and it's people like Livy will cite Arousio, and it'll get mentioned in later, you know, fourth century sources, this sort of thing. It's still a bad day. It's like, you know, the defeat by the Gauls in the 390s mm -hmm. BC, and it's like Cannae. These are the real disasters you remember. Cannae isn't among them. Hmm. So 
you know, thinking about uh, the immediate aftermath of Cari, uh, we know that, that Caesar was planning an apparently grand-scale Parthian campaign, which is cut short, of course, by his assassination, uh, shortly before his planned departure. Um, how much, if anything, do we really know about Caesar's plans for Parthia? It's only fragments. As with everything else that Julius Caesar was planning to do, it's all distorted by the propaganda of the mm. weeks and months and years that follow as the conspirators are saying, well, we had to kill the man because he'd just gone mad and was terrible. <laughs> and the uh, Caesarians saying, no, look, they, they killed the greatest Roman who'd ever been, you know, mm. that we need to avenge him. There are little bits in Plutarch and elsewhere, little bits in Appian. There were clearly major preparations underway. A large army was concentrating and Caesar had nominated senior magistrates for the next three years, you know, including Brutus and Cassius. Um, so Caesar was planning, as far as we can tell, a three-year operation, but he was also planning to fight on the Danube and do something with the Dacians beforehand. Mm -hmm. So you're probably looking at two full years. There, there are stories that he, he had this big force. He was going to take more missile men than Crassus had done. It was something which Antony will do and subsequent commanders will do. He was going to look at a different route, perhaps through Armenia, rather than um, going the same route across the Euphrates into Mesopotamia that Crassus had followed. He was going to sound out the Parthians, try and see how they fought before risking a battle with them. All of which sounds very sensible, very reasonable. What his actual objective was is much less clear because you get the wild talk of what he was going to conquer the Parthians and he was a march back ground and sort of come back to Europe through Germany, you know, through <laughs> Scythia, through Germany, all this sort of. And you come into this bigger debate you have in ancient history, particularly amongst Romanists, as to how did the Romans understand the world? How did they think about strategy? Did they think about it at all? Were they like Alexander the Great? Some would say in India, you know, he doesn't have a clue where the world ends. And he just thinks he's a few days away from mm -hmm. the sort of the encircling ocean that surrounds everything. All of which is rather hard to maintain when you look at how effectively the Romans do move armies around. You know, they don't keep getting lost all the time. They, they, they are generally in the right place. And the pragmatism of Caesar's commentaries. Now, you could... You, you could see that maybe he'd lost touch. You know, maybe Caesar was this, this dictator um, just drunk with power. Um, or you could say that this is Caesar the pragmatist who actually thinks, well, let's get away from Rome. I'll do something I know I'm good at. I'll go and fight someone for a few years. I'll win glory. That'll help to cover over all the glory I've, I've recently won, but fighting other Romans mm -hmm. in the Civil War, that's obviously pretty dodgy. I find it hard to believe that Caesar actually thought he could conquer the entire Parthian Empire in a couple of years. So either Caesar has very little idea at all of its extent, which goes against the knowledge that are there in the Greek tradition, in the Roman tradition of Alexander, who mm -hmm. has gone through this area and beyond. You know, they do know what's out there, or at least what used to be out there. So they have some sense of its scale, of its size. It's rather like all the talk of Crassus wanting to conquer Parthia. Mm -hmm. But Roman conquest, Roman victory doesn't require physical occupation. To win, you just have to make an enemy submit. You know, overcome the proud in war in the Virgilian mm -hmm. sense of things and then spare the conquered. Um, you don't have to create a new province. What he's done in Gaul has not brought most of Gaul under direct rule of the Roman Empire. It's brought it under rule of Roman allied tribes and leaders within those tribes who are appointed by Caesar and faithful to Caesar. And it won't really be until Augustus that you start to get a closely administered province or provinces. So I think... What's most likely is Caesar wants to go in and win a victory, humble the Parthian king so that either the king of kings comes and 
begs for peace, which can be, again, Roman victory, or you defeat him and you replace him with somebody else from the family, which is probably what Crassus had been planning to do. Because again, when he begins to plan, there's a civil war going on between two brothers of the king of kings they've just murdered. And one of the brothers loses out. But this is the same man who's already come out and appealed to Gabinius, the chapel restore Ptolemy Auletes. So it's, you know, this is a volatile area. And most of the monarchies of this region tend to have these internal power struggles that allow you to pick and choose your allies because there's always an alternative. And you could say that's the same in Judea, in Egypt, mm -hmm. Cappadocia, Armenia, any of these places. For the Romans to see Parthia as just a bigger version of that makes sense. And you know, Pompey and Lucullus have gone charging around this area in recent years and shown how you can redraw the map mm -hmm. or change the dynasties, reappoint people. You can fight people like Tiridates of Armenia and then recognize him. Mm -hmm. Um, so not Tyrannus Tigranes. <laughs> Sorry, I do get confused with it. One of the problems of this book is that you have so many very similar <laughs> right. names, and I'm hoping the reader will be able to follow. But I've I've tried to avoid superfluous names because sometimes you just it's it's just an extra level of complication in such a, a broad <laughs> thing. But for me, I my personal reading is that Caesar is fairly pragmatic even in those last months and has something that is very ambitious, but not quite as unrestrained, let's be Alexander the Great and conquer the world, mm -hmm. um, even though that's inevitably what the Romans talk about. And I suspect that is always true from Crassus and subsequent Roman commanders. The objectives are rather more manageable than the rhetoric would suggest, which is of, you know, conquest to India and all this wonderful thing that they mm -hmm. could do and being a new Alexander. Because the planning doesn't suggest that and what they actually do. Now, of course, with Caesar, he dies before he starts the campaign, so we don't know what he was going to do. So it, it, it is up in the air. Maybe he did want to be Alexander the Great, but personally, I suspect not. <laughs> so thinking about another, or possibly another, would-be Alexander, um, and moving a century and a half forward, um, we come to Trajan. Um, who, after a very long period of essentially peace between the two empires, decides, for reasons we don't seem to understand, to uh, conquer a great deal of Persia, at least Mesopotamia. Um, what do we know, uh, if anything, about his motivations here? Um, and also, why does his successor Hadrian seem so willing to surrender uh, the new conquests within a couple of years of their acquisition? We come up against the, the usual problem of sources, mm. and it's, it's extreme in the case of the second century AD. There is no good narrative history of major events for the second century. Dio survives only as an epitome, and mm. that's not even complete. Much, much later, so centuries later, someone in Constantinople is sitting down and picking what they think are the exciting bits, grossly <laughs> simplifying things, often interpreting the world as they understood it. And we don't have even a Tacitus, who can be you know, quite cavalier in his approach to some of these narratives, but at least gives you something and gives you the framework. So we don't know why Trajan launched this campaign. We don't know the political context. Um, we don't really know the details of the, the campaigns that followed. We don't know, for instance, why the, part, the king of Armenia will come to him and, as others had done as the king of Armenia had done before Pompey, you know, threw down his coronet before Trajan, clearly expecting to be you know, raised up, mm -hmm. given the crown back and said, right, you're my friend now, that's <laughs> fine, and doesn't. Um, and Trajan says, I'm going to make Armenia a province. The king is, is, dies in mysterious circumstances, either deliberately murdered or killed while trying to escape in the manner of so many um, <laughs> embarrassing political leaders in, in history. Um, 
on the other hand, what reason was was there for him to stay with the Romans? So maybe he <laughs> right, was trying yes. to escape it. We don't know. That's the big problem. So, so little is known about it, and it doesn't last because Hadrian becomes emperor. We have to look at this. There is a pattern. Trajan seems to drive into Mesopotamia, goes down the Tigris-Euphrates, creates a new province of Mesopotamia, as well as Armenia, is to- talks about or actually creates a province of Assyria. Hard to define what region he'd actually mean by that. Mm-hmm. We don't know the extent of any of these new territories. And just because they're given a name doesn't mean that we should interpret in the broader sense, but mm-hmm. also doesn't mean that we, we know we can't. So... Trajan is successful. He goes to Tessaphon. He goes to Seleucia. And then the wheels fall off and there are rebellions cropping up all over the, mm. the, the overrun territory. You know, people have drawn similarities with one of the Seleucid campaigns where they do very well against the Parthians. And then again, these rebellions break out everywhere. Simultaneously or near enough, you also have the big rebellion in Egypt, in Cyprus, in Cyrenaica, right. the Jewish population. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, there's, it's tempting to think, well, we know there's a big Jewish population in Parthia. We know there's likely to be contact. Is this inspired or is this simply completely hmm. um, different, provoked by all sorts of other causes? Again, we know very, very little about these apart from epitome of Dio, a few fragments elsewhere, a few papyri, the sense that this was devastatingly costly. Um, so some people say, well, Trajan basically is chased out. You know, he has to ab- abandon these conquests and that probably it was nearly underway before he dies. On the other hand, if you read the epitome of Dio such as it is, Trajan's commanders actually seem to be doing rather well. They've recaptured most of the territory. They win a series of victories. Trajan appoints a new king of kings and, you know, has him having stormed Tessaphon um, and, and captured it by assault, whereas the first time the city opened its gates to the Romans. Mm-hmm. So there are Roman victories and... There's no hint, really, in any practical sense that Trajan is thinking of going further than Assyria in terms of provinces. You know, he doesn't want to annex the entire Parthian Empire and its heartland, which means there's going to be a Parthia, there's going to be a king of kings. So are the ambitions always restrained? Are they always that focused in that, does he really know what he's doing or does he sort of make it up as he goes along and see how things Mm -hmm. work and then decide, well, we've overrun this area. I don't see a leader that I can trust to govern it for us and to be our local king. So let's make it a province. That's more reliable. I mean, you you have more than we tend to allow these flips where the Romans go between treating an area as a province and then putting a a dynast back in charge for a while and then maybe a different emperor or that dynast disgraces himself or the successor is not there and they change their mind. I mean, the story of the Herods mm-hmm. is, is, is full of this, where they're, they're in exile, they're virtual captives, then they're back as king again. Um, and it's not that uncommon. We tend to see the Romans as too rigid in terms of, right, this is a province, and it's always going to be a province. In areas where they don't have to do that, there is more fluidity. So Trajan might be doing that, but the problem is we don't know. We don't know whether he is, again, a man trying to recapture his youth, who mm. is... Um, Loves fighting, loves being the great warrior, had great fun in Dacia, you know, two <laughs> tough wars, but he wins. He goes back and builds his forum in Rome, commemorates it on Trajan's column. That's what he's good at. He doesn't really like politics, which is dull, which is boring. <laughs> he's a man, you know, 60-ish by this stage. His health maybe not that good. And the striking thing about Trajan which may be more striking because of what Hadrian and other successors do, is that he hasn't adopted anyone. He has not marked anyone out as his successor. 
And normally that's something, you know, Nerva, who adopts Trajan, does so within a matter of months of mm -hmm. becoming emperor, picks somebody who's younger, who's showing, right, this continuity to the regime, therefore you want to be my friend, you want to be on my side. Trajan doesn't do that. Now that's very odd because Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, Marcus Aurelius will all have a clearly nominated successor. Hadrian himself gets, is promised a second consulship, but he hasn't really been, you know, he hasn't started to get all those trappings, tribunician power, the big commands that, that there is this sort of career path, really, where mm -hmm. you can go to become emperor in waiting, to become a, a sort of secondary princeps, um, if that makes sense. But Trajan hasn't done that. So the novelist in me is almost tempted to see this as someone who's not facing up to the fact that he's old and is going to die and wants to recapture his youth mm -hmm. and sort of do the military stuff that he really likes. But while that's possible, it could be that there genuinely was a far less stable situation in Armenia, in the border territories. We do know that the Parthians are engaged in a very bitter civil war with two, maybe three rival claimants to be king of kings. That can make them very unstable. So perhaps Trajan is just thinking, I need to assert power here because this is actually, you know, you can see it as an entirely pragmatic thing. This is good for the empire. This is good for security. Mm -hmm. Or you can see it as I want glory. I want fame. The two are not incompatible. Sure. Um, you know, Politicians today talk about wanting to make their, you know, put their place in the history books to their great achievements. You know, everybody is issuing all these press releases of all the wonderful things they've done, even if they're not campaigning for re-election. It's, it's this, isn't, aren't things great? Haven't I done wonderful things? That was even stronger in the aristocratic culture of the ancient mm -hmm. world, where people are steeped in this Greco-Roman tradition of, you know, excellence, of being the best, of doing things, of achieving more, of not simply being the best person around at the time, but outdoing all that's come before. So both sides are possible. I think perhaps the, the abandonment of this territory by Hadrian needs to be put in a more political context in that, as I say, Hadrian has not been marked out as successor. It is claimed that on his deathbed, Trajan announces that Hadrian will be adopted, that Hadrian will be his son, will be his successor. But that's, you know, that's pretty flimsy. And Trajan dies on the road in Cilicia on his way back mm -hmm. to Rome as his health fails. And of course, you have that, the, the inscription that talks about his, his chamberlain, his food taster, who died within a few days <laughs> of the emperor, but whose remains don't get back to the, the shrine in Rome until much later. You know, which is a, a sort of, when you have the bits in dire that Trajan thought he was being poisoned, you have to think, well, is this... Is this regime change that's deliberate by a faction within the court, whether or not Hadrian himself? Again, as a novelist, all that stuff is tempting. As a historian, you have to say we don't know. Mm -hmm. But what we do know is that there are several arrests and executions of key senators as within weeks of Hadrian succeeding. That, for instance, Lucius Quietus, the you know, Mauritanian mm -hmm. prince who's turned Roman senators, been one of Trajan's favorite generals, is sent to Judea when the rebellion, the Jewish rebellion breaks out elsewhere and Judea does not rebel. So, you know, he's not remembered very favorably by the rabbinical sources, but <laughs> the guy's good at his job. I mean, he's, he's a very efficient commander. He's perhaps brutal, but he does the, the job. This is a potential rival. He mm -hmm. very soon is out of the way and killed off. Others will follow in the next few years. We think of Hadrian as one of the five good emperors. You know, this is the height of the Roman Empire, the man who builds the Pantheon, the man who builds Hadrian's Wall, that wonderful villa complex at Tivoli. Roman sources remember him much more negatively, and he is seen, he has never really forgiven for these deaths of senators early on in his reign, and the fact that deep down they just don't like him. You know, he's a bit too smug, he's a bit too clever by <laughs> half. Um, so even though he seems to rule well, the tradition is not favorable, 
But we forget that he is the sort of the next one in the sequence of these good emperors, that the second century is going to be such a wonderful time. In those early months, in those early years, nobody knew that. Mm -hmm. Hadrian could easily have been murdered. He could have been overthrown. He is not popular. So he probably is not very keen at all on fighting a war, especially a risky war, given that this is you know, dangerous taking on the Parthians out in the east to secure these new territories. He doesn't abandon all of the recently conquered land, and much of the rest goes to allied rulers. Now, we tend to see things in this simple sort of Cold War fashion. You're either pro-Parthian you're either, <laughs> or you're pro-Roman. Mm -hmm. It's nowhere near as simple as that. These are friendly monarchs on your borders and in Armenia and places like that that you feel won't do anything you don't like too much. So better to let them deal with it. It's much less, much cheaper than installing garrisons and maintaining them. Now, Hadrian will travel around the empire during his reign and spend more time out of the capital than anybody since Augustus, but he doesn't fight aggressive wars. If he, can, you know, he, he doesn't do that sort of thing. So partly it's temperament. There may well be a pragmatic calculation. Look, we've got what we need. We've got the best parts of the world, the best parts of the empire. Let's just hold it. Let's just enjoy the prosperity and defend it. Uh, that's not you know, an alien concept to an ancient mind. We tend to be, it's, it's there reflecting Appian and others, the sense that, you know, Appian talks about these, these embassies coming from beyond the frontiers, asking to be admitted to the Roman Empire and say, well, no, we don't need you. Sorry, you're not <laughs> worth it. Uh, the abandonment of territory in Scotland, you know, is much the same concept. Mm -hmm. It's just too expensive to garrison. Um, it's not that we, can't, we couldn't take it, but do we really want to? So it's probably a mixture of all those things, but I think the political context is very important. And that's a wonderful example of how many interpretations are possible from these, you know, very scanty sources that, you know, we, we can speculate, you know, more or less intelligently, certainly, you know, on the basis of what we do know. But in the end, it is just, you know, the the, the great void of ignorance. And, and that honesty needs to be needs to be there. It needs to yes, be. Yes. It's important to say we don't know. Don't pretend that oh well, this is what I think. This is what <laughs> I think Trajan was like or Hadrian was like. Right. Right. Um, which is tempting, and it can frustrate people when they read a book and, and you, you are essentially admitting, well, really the sources are so terrible, they're so unreliable, we just don't know enough to say what was going on. <laughs> and that bugs some people because they want certainty. Sure. But, uh, you know, it can be hard enough to understand just what people you disagree with of different political stance want in your own country today in an open <laughs> yes. democracy what they you know what they say and what they're really thinking and what they're doing mm -hmm. um let alone other countries in this world add the distance of time and different cultures but it's a good reminder that we need to think far more and not assume that even the world today is simple straightforward and mm -hmm. easy to understand yeah well yeah, absolutely right you know so much smoke so many mirrors and even our sources these antithesis are so opaque to us um so hopefully not to, to lean too hard into that uh, opacity, mm -hmm. but to ask another question about that uh, ill-documented second century. You know, we know the Romans do quite well, as you said, against the Parthians uh, again and again, uh, coming to Tisiphon, um, you know, surging through, apparently defeating Parthian armies with ease. We have no details on these battles, but we do know, I think, at least in general terms, about the different organization and equipment of the Parthian and Roman armies in this period. So could you talk a bit about that, about what we know about the Parthian military and how it contrasts with the legions and auxiliaries of the second century? The, the Parthians are rather a problem at this stage because, as, as you mentioned, there are no accounts, no detailed narratives that explain any of these battles that mm -hmm. really tell us anything about how the Parthians fight at this stage. So the assumption is that, well, people like Plutarch are writing early second century, Dio writing in the third century. 
what they say about the Parthians must be true still, even though it's in context that talks about the first century BC, mm-hmm. that essentially the Parthians have remained the same. I mean, it's, it's notable that in Tacitus, quite detailed descriptions of Nero's campaigns and his war in and around Armenia, he never really describes what pa- troops the Parthians mm-hmm. and their Armenian and Median allies have got. You know, it's, it's simply not there. Um, presumably he assumed everybody knew or nobody cared. I don't you know. It's, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's hard to say. What we do have is a much more detailed, though not complete, picture of the Roman army. And compared to the very much legion-based army of the first century BC, where the legions were your citizen troops, they were these heavy infantrymen, very good engineers, very good at sieges, very good in close combat, but you know, not armed, not equipped for other types of warfare. The Roman army has always been, at almost any period, at least half foreign and allied at any stage. Mm-hmm. Under the Principate, this has become much more organized. You have the auxilia, the non-citizen troops who are regimented, documented, um, given orders in Latin. You know, auxiliaries get for much of the time Roman citizenship at the end of their 25 years service. We know that amongst these troops, there are lots of cavalry. Uh, people tend to play down the proportion, but there aren't necessarily that much more cavalry in, say, the 4th, early 5th century AD army as there are earlier on. There are a lot of there. It's just we don't have good accounts of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them seem to be the sort of fairly generic. They've got male armor. They've got a big shield. They've got um, you know, sword to back it up, spear, javelins, this sort of thing. They don't ride an armored horse. But there are a few units of cataphracts. There are a few units of horse archers. There are light cavalry. There are the Numidians and Mauritanians who depicted on Trajan's column, you know, with no armor at all, mm-hmm. without proper bridles on their horses, fighting in their traditional way. There are lots of infantry units that are described as archers. There are sling bullets and other things that turn up on sites. We don't know of a unit of slingers, but presumably either there are units that don't have the title or some people within other cohorts might be trained, might know how to use this. So the Romans develop a far more balanced combined arms force where they've got good skirmishers, they've got good cavalry, they've got good missile troops, they've got good heavy infantry. They're very, very good at sieges. And the impression you get from Tacitus and Corbulo's campaigns and later on is that the Parthians can no longer defeat them in battle. So the Romans keep on advancing until they get to a city and then they can take that city by assault or by siege Mm -hmm. because they've got the engineering capacity to do it. And they're sufficiently organized to um, and have the technological capacity to support a siege. So that's something they can do. It's much harder to say how good the Parthians are at sieges at this point. They have a reputation earlier on for not not having the patience, not being able to feed their horses for long enough to stay in one place. On the other hand, Parthian civil wars and elsewhere, Parthian armies do take cities. So they're doing it somehow (laughs) at some point, but they're probably not as proficient as the Romans. One striking thing that I don't think anyone has really emphasized enough before is that Fragmentary though the accounts are, and brief though the accounts are, of Trajan's campaigns, of Lucius Verus' war, of Septimius Severus, all talk about several Roman commanders operating at the same time. And it looks as if they're no longer doing the, which perhaps Caesar was planning, and certainly Mark Antony does, form a massive army, keep it in one place, and sort of plod along, Mm -hmm. smash anything in your path. In fact, they're operating with several field armies that may be able to concentrate when they need to, of a legion or two plus auxiliaries, 10,000 men, 20,000 men, maybe 25,000 at most, several of these operating, which suggests that the level of problem they're dealing with, the level of threat, 
is at that scale. Mm-hmm. So maybe the Parthians aren't forming really big armies, but also that an army that size can survive on its own, can act independently. So there's also, apart from the troop types, there's a command structure that's quite sophisticated. And the Romans seem very good at operating in this manner. So they have lots of troops in theater, but not all in one place, in one camp at the same time. But the big problem is that we don't really see a Parthian or Persian army operating until we get to the third century, by which time the Sasanians mm-hmm. are in charge, when they seem to be a little bit different. They certainly have developed quite sophisticated methods of siegecraft by then. The question is, when does that happen? Because the other trend that's visible becomes more and more prominent under the Sasanians is that horse archers no longer seem very important in battle. They're out there raiding, they're out there skirmishing, they're out there plundering the the countryside, but you don't get Persian armies standing off and bombarding the Romans with arrows, and then when the Romans try and attack them, just galloping away and waiting till the Romans are tired and then coming back. There's not that harassing light horse archer. There's a sort of heaviness about it all. They've got far more armored cavalry who might, at least in time, be predominantly bowmen rather than cataphracts who want to charge home. Mm-hmm. But the man is protected. The horse is protected. They're in a dense block that stays there and shoots. It's a, it's a, a system of fighting that is much closer to the Roman, let's go for close combat, let's sort of you know barge our way through and slice our way through. But when does that happen? Is this something that's been going on from the second century or is this a reaction to the Parthian defeats in that period saying, well, we can't beat the Romans anymore, so how are we going to do this? Mm-hmm. How do we deal with this problem? Later on, you can certainly see this sort of interchange between the two sides, innovation matched by a, a counter-innovation on the other side, so that you get a temporary advantage, but then the others catch up and you have to do something else. And they get more and more similar in the way mm-hmm. they fight, culminating in the sort of six, seven centuries when there's very little difference at all between mm-hmm. these armies. The problem is tracing this, and the Parthians are so poorly treated in our sources, even compared to the Sasanians, that we just we just don't know what they're doing and what they're really like. But the key thing to remember is that when the Sasanians take over, their armies are provided by the Karin, by the Surin, by the same clans as before. They're probably not that different. Mm-hmm. So it might be that a lot of this change is quite gradual, sort of more evolutionary than a sudden revolution where in comes somebody with new ideas and right this is this is the marvelous army we want this is how we're going to beat the romans you know speaking of that transition you know that in the early third century the sasanians displace the arsacids um, and parthia becomes persia you know and, we, and you say some people say this is kind of the flipping of a great cosmic switch where persia is suddenly a profoundly more dynamic centralized bureaucratic state than its shambolic parthian predecessor um, but as you've been saying you know there's Clearly, continuity is more important than transition, uh, than contrast in these regimes. So to what extent do you think that the claim that the Sasanians were a greater threat to Rome is is justified? I think it's there's an element of truth in it, though it's largely in the short term and has to be seen in context. And it's it's not primarily due to the fact that the king of kings is now a Sasanian rather than our Sassid. You have to remember the Sasanians are one noble family that are regionally powerful from the regional kings of um, Fars province, modern sort of Fars in around that area. They rebel against, first of all, local kings, and then eventually against the king of kings and overthrow him. Adashir I will do this, followed by his son Shapa I. But they're doing it with, they are part of, up until now, the Parthian Empire, the Parthian army when called upon. 
They're not fundamentally different. If you look at the, the rock carving showing some of these climatic battles, there are differences in insignia, but basically they are armored cavalrymen fighting other armored cavalrymen because that's how a Parthian nobleman will fight just because you happen to be from a different family mm -hmm. and you have a tradition of different language, different religion. So do many of the other groups within the empire. The, one of the problems is, one of the reasons why this, this, this idea is so deeply entrenched that it is very convenient for people who study late antiquity. And it shouldn't be the case now, but for a long time this was unfashionable. And it meant that people who studied it seemed to feel they needed to justify their existence academically and within a department. So they've been very, very positive about the third and particularly fourth century Roman Empire and even beyond. You know, it's not decline from the Principate. It's not long-term decline at all. This is a rejuvenation. This is the victory of a new, leaner, meaner Roman Empire mm -hmm. that would could have gone on forever unless, but some bad things happen later on. And for them, it's very convenient to say, well, the reason there are so many problems in the third century, the reason there's this crisis is not because the empire is weaker or less well-led. It's because suddenly the threats are greater. You know, the Germanic peoples have come together in big federations, but the big beast is suddenly this Sasanian empire that is radically different from these Parthians that you could, you could beat easily and is far more aggressive, far more militarily formidable. But it, as I say, it, it, it faces the problem. These are the same people, same people under different leaders. Mm -hmm. What you do have that's fundamentally different is you have to remember Ardashir I has got to become king of kings by rebelling and by defeating every enemy he's met so far that have got successively bigger. He's also king of kings by the sword. He has to prove himself. If he wants to stay there, if he wants to found a dynasty that we happen to know will go on for four centuries, but he doesn't know that at the time, then he needs to convince everyone to support him. Hmm. Best way to do that is always to find an outside enemy. And if you can say, well, look, the Parthians, the, my, the people I overthrew were so weak, they were humiliated by the Romans, you know, their ancestral tombs were desecrated by Caracalla, all this sort of stuff, but I will go and humiliate them. I will show them, I will beat them, join me, and you'll get plunder and glory and reward and all this sort of thing. It's a good way to convert former enemies into moderately loyal allies, people you can rely upon as far as you ever can in the context of the ancient world and its politics. So this is someone who's led, who's won, basically led a military coup, who's got a really good army, who's a very good general. And the I, his successor, is depicted as a prince fighting a, a Parthian nobleman on the monuments. He's clearly taken a major part in at least the latter stages of this rebellion, of this war to take over the empire. So you have two very capable, very aggressive kings who need glory. They are at the head of an army that's got used to winning, mm -hmm. that is a very well-practiced team. So to some extent, it's not an institutional change that suddenly they're fighting in a different way, their tactics are different. They're just better. And they hit the Romans at a time when the Roman Empire is in, what even scholars would admit, is the third century crisis, where emperors are coming and going with remarkable speed and where your most deadly enemy is not a Persian or not a German, it's another Roman. You know, um, one Roman emperor managed to get himself captured by the Persians. Mm -hmm. One managed to get himself killed by the Goths, but all the others die at the hands of Romans or, you know, Claudius Gothicus gets the plague. Um, but you, you die violently, but at the hands of yourself or other Romans. The Roman Empire is in a chaotic state. It isn't the organized, united force that can bring troops from all over the empire in an organized way under a capable leader. More importantly, it's somewhere where you can no longer trust provincial governors, subordinate commanders to go and do the job 
because the emperor knows that if they succeed, then mm-hmm. they're going to be a rival. And they'll have to be because they know the emperor doesn't trust them anymore because that's the way he's thinking. <laughs> so the Roman Empire is weak. The, the Persian Empire is very strong and needs successes. And that's why you have this spate of victories, particularly under the I, where he leads these expeditions, he captures cities, he plunders them, and he gets to the Antioch gets to Antioch, plunders that. This hasn't happened for such a long time that it's, you know, it's distant memory. It's going back to the first century BC, the last time Parthian armies were operating in this area. So it's more a combination of local factors, short-term factors, because two things stand out. One is that the I doesn't seize and permanently occupy any territory from the Romans. The second one is that it's a very long time before any Persian kings can do this again. Now, if you're of the late antiquity school, that that's because the late empire is so great and it makes itself so strong under Diocletian and people like this, and therefore, you know, the, the Persians just don't have a chance anymore. But if you take a longer view, you're actually thinking, well, you've had two Persian kings who've had to fight their way to power. They are succeeded by people who are now part of the established dynasty who don't have that experience. And you know, eventually all your old soldiers have retired or died. Your army isn't as good as it used to be. It's not a fundamental change, as I say, in the way it fights. It's just that you're, you're very good at a time when the Romans are unusually weak. And when those situations are reversed, as they will be at various times, the Romans will do well for a while and the Persians will do badly. And then when they flip again, it goes the other way. So it's not a permanent change. It's just one of those easy things you can put a few paragraphs in or a chapter in a book and that well that explains something right. without us having to you know actually look pragmatically at just how does the later roman empire work and how efficient is it really yeah well, that, that, that's fascinating you know this this tendency in looking in retrospect and over the long term to create periods and invent sea changes you know in, in the, the grand in grand politics mm. high politics um yeah no, i'd say that there must be a consequence of that and thinking about this late antique warfare, once we're past, you know, the, this uh, the grand conquests of Ardashir and Shapur, um, it, it seems to be mostly siege warfare, or directed around sieges of these few border cities. Um, one of which, um, Dura Europus, we have exceptionally well documented archaeology for um, of uh, repeated Sasanian sieges. So you talk briefly about how the ruins of Dura, um, or what, what they tell us about the siege warfare um, by which the Sassanians um, wage their campaigns against the Eastern Roman Empire. Yeah, Dura is one of those remarkable sites because it doesn't just have fascinating archaeology that, that does tell you something about the progress of sieges, but also there's so much papyri as well as inscriptions, but particularly the, the records on papyri of the Roman army units that are based there, of um, civilians as well, a few small documents from Persian occupation, <laughs> a few from the Parthian period before the Romans came along. This is an old Seleucid city with Seleucid walls that is there on the river and is still in a key place along the route you're going to go if you're going up or down the Euphrates. But it's barely mentioned by our literary sources. So it's a reminder of how a place rather like Pompeii or Herculaneum can become incredibly important in how we see Roman culture, art, and all this sort of thing because they're preserved. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to the ancient sources, they don't really talk about them. You know, this is these are minor places. Pompeii was rather vulgar. Jura Europus is not a big city. We don't quite know when it finally fell, just when Shapo I took the place and it ceased to be occupied. 
The advantage was that other than later on some, um, some Christian hermits settled there for a while, there was that sort of community. Basically speaking, after the, the Persian, probably the second time it's occupied, perhaps the only time it's taken by force, but certainly the, it's, it's abandoned. It is never reoccupied. It's buried in the sand and was there to be found just after the First World War by some you know, men from the Indian Army who were digging a machine gun post and they came across <laughs> a Roman temple. But it's got the synagogue with its wall paintings, the Christian baptistry, various temples, this sense of this incredibly mixed, vibrant community on the fringes at different times in different empires. So it gives us this glimpse into an ancient world that we don't often see in that sort of detail. But what's interesting about the siege is that we have these rather spectacular finds, particularly the Persians um, probably are responsible for the huge camps that are built outside, but they begin to try and undermine, they tunnel under the Roman defenses, hoping to bring, collapse the mine, bring the wall down, create a breach through which they can get. There are at least two attempts to do this, neither of which fully succeed. A part of the Roman wall collapses, but the Romans have built up the wall, supporting it by earth banks either side, which means it doesn't quite collapse. It sinks a bit, but it doesn't mm. open a way through. Um, then more famously, you've got the, the tunnel where the skeletons were found of Roman troops. Now, Simon James came out with the, this intriguing idea that the, Roman, uh, the, sorry, the, the Romans may have been gassed by the Persians, that as they're putting all this bitumen and other stuff to set the props alight, because the Persian tunnel was lower than the Roman one, the Roman one acts as a chimney and it sort of sucks all the gases mm -hmm. asphyxiates the Romans. This then caused a sort of minor stir in the papers where it was reported in British papers, then Iranian newspapers said, well, this is, you know, accusing us of war crimes in the, the in antiquity and, <laughs> you know, the, the Westerners depicting us as terrorists, every drop for hat and this sort of thing. However, what's particularly interesting is while the Persians do collapse this tunnel, again, it doesn't bring the wall down properly and the Romans seal up the other end. There isn't actually any physical evidence for how the Persians get into the city. Now, part of the defensive has been lost by erosion from the river. So it might be that it happened there. It might be that they climbed over the walls in ladders, crept in at night, and that doesn't leave an archaeological trace. Mm -hmm. Or it might be that in the end, the Romans finally said, okay, you know, we can't hold out any longer. We're running out of food. You're going to get us in the end. Can we get better terms if we surrender now? Because it's not described in any literary source, we don't know. But it, it, we get this wonderful glimpse of a frontier outpost, but city as well. And remarkable finds of equipment, you know, there's this set of horse armor um, from a cataphract that is there. The best preserved Roman shields are from Dura Europus. All of this stuff turns up there. Um, it's not as well known as it, it should be, partly because it's taken ages, even though the, you know, the excavation was in the 20s and 30s. <laughs> right. Some of it's only been published relatively recently. Lots of the papers are, um, are there, but they're not that, that, that well organized. So... Um, but it, it, it's a fascinating glimpse, and it, it does make clear that the, the Sasanian Persian armies by this period and later on are formidable when it comes to taking cities in a way that the Romans had been in the past. Now there seems to be almost equality, perhaps at some times by the 4th century, even a slight advantage to the Persians as to how to do this. So it's again, it's a sign of this sort of arms race on each side, and this, mm -hmm. this race in technology, in doctrine, in tactics, in, in engineering or each try to catch up. But by the time you get to the fourth century, and again, one of these little wonderful periods where for a few decades you have Ammianus Marcellinus who gives you mm -hmm. detailed accounts, often in his case by an eyewitness. You know, he throws in these little anecdotes that you don't feel you'd get otherwise because they're things he remembers. Um, and he's there for the siege of Amida. Mm -hmm. But there is clearly a sort of 
formulaic, almost processional nature to sieges where an army turns up, it demonstrates, it tries to get the defenders to um, surrender by sort of escalating threats. You know, there's the degree to which you're showing how determined you are and you hope they'll give in, but if they don't, then you start to besiege them. And this is how it goes on. It could take a long time and the city will fall or it won't. And uh, again, the sort of the move and counter move between offenders, uh, the defenders and the, the attackers. So that we start to see, it already seems to be there to a fair extent at Dura. It would be nice to know when that starts, you know, what has been happening in these second century and early third century wars? Have the Parthians done this? Or is this something, is this part of the secret of Adashir's and Chapo's success that they have recruited siege engineers? You know, you could, if you want to be that sort of rather negative approach to human history where everyone has to copy someone else, you know, no one ever <laughs> right, innovates right. or works the thing out from first principles from the same sort of situation. You'd say, well, they go and capture Roman engineers or Roman engineers desert mm -hmm. during the civil war and they tell you how to do it. Well, maybe, but you know, human beings can be quite smart on their own. They can work <laughs> things out. And if you go back, there is a tradition both on the Greek side and in some of the, uh, the other traditions of siege warfare in this part of the ancient world. So, you know, there are Greek texts out there in places like Seleucia that will tell you how, how the Greeks do all this sort of thing and how the Macedonians mm. do all this sort of thing and probably how the Romans do it. So there are ways where they could have worked it out for themselves. Hmm. And obviously did quite successfully as we see, hmm. right, at, at Dura or at, at Amida. Hmm. Um, you know, thinking about the conflict in late antiquity, which does seem to go in these cycles of aggression and then peace, um, one of the great new elements besides the uh, whatever the Sicilian regime, uh, whatever its ideology might actually be, as far as we can tell, um, is that the role of religion, because of course the empire, the Roman Empire becomes Christian more and more stridently over the course of the fourth century. While it seems that um, the Sasanians um, become increasingly assertive about their brand of Zoroastrianism uh, in the same period, or at least more suspicious of Christians in their own empire, who are seen as sort of a fifth column that you know, could be uh, undermining their war efforts. So how significant, in your view, is the role played by religion, um, if only in rhetoric, perhaps in warfare as well, over the course of late antiquity? It's, it's again, one of those stories that's quite hard to tell. And it's complicated, but you could say in a general sense that when the Roman Empire becomes Christian, it doesn't change the ideology of empire, of imperialism to any marked degree at all. The rhetoric is slightly different in that you are thanking God rather than the gods mm -hmm. for your preeminence, for the fact that Rome is special, that Rome deserves to dominate, that Rome deserves to be stronger than everyone else. It's quite hard to know how religion is working under the Parthians. There are certainly... It seems to be a broader pantheon of deities worship. There are elements of the Zoroastrian tradition comes through, and it's clearly still there because it can be revived. But is Zoroastrianism in, say, um, Fars province in Persis, in places like that, the same as everywhere else hmm. within the Parthian and then the Sasanian Empire? Uh, one problem is we have these inscriptions and boasts of a particular priest who accompanied Shapo I on his some of his expeditions mm -hmm. into Europe, who talks about finding Zoroastrians in Asia Minor, for instance, and sort of instructing them in the right way of doing things, of um, setting up fire temples, lighting the sacred flame in captured territory. Um, and it's, it's a problem because we are dealing with centuries of history and the evidence tend to focus on particular figures, particular periods. And there are cases where 
there is talk of the Romans wanting to protect the rights of Christians within the Persian Empire, though, as far as we can tell, most of those Christians are Christians who would be considered heretical mm -hmm. by the church at the time in Constantinople. So is this a convenient excuse? There aren't really good cases where either side goes to war purely over religion or saying, you know, I have to conquer you because you are being cruel to my co-religionists, or let alone the idea I have to conquer you to convert you to the true way. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem to make more war more common. It is an extra factor. One, one group of people who figure very largely from, certainly from the, the fourth century onwards and later are Christian bishops who are depicted as leading the defense of various cities or of negotiating with the, the Persians, this sort of thing. Now that may be because so many of the sources have a, come from the church, therefore mm -hmm. talk about the bits you know about, the bits you're interested in, the bits that are um, good for you. <laughs> and maybe play down the civil authorities who might be there as well. That's always hard to tell in late antiquity, where the bishops have become these sort of semi-civilian magistrates as well as um, religious figures. But you get periods where the, the Persians are split over how to interpret proper Zoroastrianism, where you have these religious movements that come along and cause in the much later memory, the medieval tradition that, that's preserved in Armenia and to some extent the Arab sources of Sasanian kings as good or bad because of how they, oddly enough by the time, because obviously these are written in the Muslim period, mm -hmm. how these are treated as, were you a proper Zoroastrian in the past, you're a good, <laughs> you're a good king of kings, you're not. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say, I mean, it's one of those things, I confess, I do not cover in immense detail in the book because I think it's very hard to pin down Zoroastrianism in any period in terms of doctrine. And I think you're probably wrong to do so because I suspect it's much more, it was much more diverse than that would allow. And the particular traditions that are more prominent or have survived into the present day may not necessarily reflect the entirety of religious experience in the same way that modern Christianity does not necessarily um, represent all the people who considered themselves Christians, mm -hmm. whether or not other people considered them Christians in late antiquity. And it, it's the changes is much more one of, of rhetoric and of how you understand how you present each other um, until perhaps very late. There is a striking thing in the seventh century where both sides become more aggressive and the religious rhetoric seems to increase as well. But that's really in that great war that will will bring the rivalry to an end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll come to that, that war in a moment. But what's striking is that how, how exceptional that this final war and this, you know, this rhetoric of absolute division and contrast, um, how unusual this is um, over the course of seven centuries of conflict, how up to that point, uh, it seems, these have been a long series of limited wars, even in the case of, say, Caesar and Trajan, as far as we can tell what they wanted to do. Um, it's a war for regional advantage, um, strategic advantage, um, and for home consumption. You want to bring the, the trophy back home. Um, but, but why, in, in your opinion, over this very long period, um, were so many emperors and so many kings of kings content with these sort of limited victories, limited campaigns um, for purely regional goals? It did surprise me because that wasn't really what I was expecting. You know, I'd, I'd grown up, I was used to the idea that you have the Trajans and the others, that you know, they mm -hmm. want to go and conquer Parthia, that the Romans actually seriously thought about it. And obviously you have the rhetoric in, in Horace and Virgil and the like, talking about, you know, how Augustus will become a god when he's, he's conquered Parthia and Britain, neither of which he mm -hmm. does um, or even attempts. I think it's, it, we have this problem is that partly because of, the poetry and the official rhetoric and the boasts and the monuments of, again, 
empire without limit, of world empire, we tend to concentrate, we talk a lot about Roman imperialism because that's what everybody studies. And empires obviously these days are bad things and conquest is a bad thing in a way that the ancient world didn't necessarily see it. But we tend to, there has been this big debate and it's come you know, part of the whole grand strategy debate as to whether or not the Roman empire thinks and plans about defending itself, whether it's ever really defensive at all, whether it's capable mm-hmm. of this sort of thing, or whether it is purely as the poets and some of the other literature would suggest, every emperor wants glory and everyone, glory means expansion, conquest. You only fail to do this if you just don't feel strong enough. You're simply biding your time. You're waiting for the moment when you can go out and complete the conquest of the world that is Rome's right and your right and your destiny. All of that is there and it's also there on the Parthian and particularly the Sasanian Persian side. You know, you look at the grand monuments and you are king of, you know, king of kings of the Aryans and the non-Aryans, so basically you're king of the world. Um, you're fighting you know, the, the true fight between the truth and the lie uh, within the Zoroastrian faith. You are you know, appointed, supported by, you are the greatest God's representative on earth and therefore it is your duty to go and fight these just wars to show the world the true way in a sense. So that that rhetoric is definitely there, and it's there on both sides. But it's when you look at what they actually do, rather than what they actually say, that you realize that they don't ever make any serious attempt to conquer each other until perhaps to that that very end in the 7th century. That the ambitions, even of people like Crassus, seem a lot more limited when you look closely. And that the Romans did have as I say, it might be antiquated, but they do from the Alexander tradition and from the Seleucid history, they do know what's out there. They might not know precisely what's there now, but they have a fair idea of just how big these areas are, how rugged the terrain is, how difficult it is, and they never try to go there. You know, you can say on the one hand, well, Roman armies go down the Tigris-Euphrates, they burn Tessaphon, they burn Seleucia, they occupy these royal cities nearby, but they never go to Persis or anywhere near that, and never try, never seem to want to, in the same way that, you know, you're never going to get Parthian or Roman, or sorry, Persian armies watering their horses in the River Tiber. <laughs> you know, they, they make, it's just not, it's not physically possible. So for all the rhetoric, for all this debate about just how did the Romans conceive the world, how did they think about war, how did they think of peace, what they actually did in relationship to this other empire, and what the Persians and Parthians had done in response, is much more pragmatic it's much more shows a recognition of, yeah, these people are strong. This empire is big. Now that means they're a danger in some respects because if we ever do have an all-out war with them, then it's going to be tough because they're a big dangerous enemy. On the other hand, they're easier to deal with because if we make an agreement with the King of Kings or the King of Kings makes an agreement with the Roman Empire, it's not like making an agreement with tribes beyond the Danube for the Romans or with peoples by the Black Sea with the steppe nomads for the um, the Persians, where one leader might say, yes, I'm going to be your friend, but in a few weeks' time, another one appears or a different tribe decides to do this. Mm-hmm. You can deal with them. Peace is The peace tends to last. It also tends to be more clearly defined when you're at war, when you're at peace between Rome and, and, and Persia. But it does seem to be primarily about status, about asserting your right, partly for a home audience, but also that ancient sense that if you are weak and vulnerable, people will attack you. You know, it, it goes back to, you can look at the second century BC, Polybius never asked why did the Romans want to conquer the Mediterranean and dominate it. Mm-hmm. He simply talks about, explains how they did it. The assumption is that, well, if you can, you're bound to, aren't you? Because if you don't, somebody else will do it to you. 
And that mentality does seem pervasive in the ancient world, in, in every culture that we know about, that weak people get attacked, they get picked on. So you have to sort of be like a, a cat, you know, arching its back and going, hey, you've got to frighten the enemy away. Don't sort of try, or potential enemies. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of saber rattling. There is also one of the big factors that, we, you know, I, I've tried to emphasize throughout the book is that because we have this sort of Cold War way of looking at everything. So there's the Romans, there's the Persians, there's, you know, like NATO and Warsaw Pact, and mm -hmm. everybody is either on their side or against them. And they have satellite states, but there's, we forget that then, but particularly in the Roman period, places like Armenia or um, other kingdoms that are on the borders between the two, they have ambitions of their own and their leaders have ambitions of their own. Quite a few of the conflicts don't start with the king of kings or the emperor wanting trouble, but one ally picks on the ally of another, or one mm -hmm. ally begins to do things the other doesn't like, and they intervene. And then that means, well, you've got to be careful. I don't want the Romans to be too influential. It's far more about influence than direct control, mm -hmm. because controlling these regions is, is very difficult for anybody, although it does eventually happen in some areas and they, they come under direct rule. There's always that problem that you can't predict what they're going to do. And these are active players. Just because we know that Armenia can't afford to take on Rome or Persia on its own and win, doesn't mean that they have to or that they're thinking that way. Because all they need to do is win locally as far as they're concerned. And they don't have this, this sense that everything you know, will come down upon them, in part because emperors and kings of kings always have plenty of other problems that most of the time are a much greater priority than dealing with the other empire. Mm -hmm. As I say, the other empire is fairly simple. You can hopefully negotiate with it, you can keep it happy, and you don't have to fight the really big war, which means that you can spare the troops and the money and your own personal attention to go and deal with the Goths, go and deal with the Alemanni, go and deal with the various groups that come in on your, your eastern and northern frontiers from the Persian point of view, or you can deal with the Arab kingdoms down by the Gulf that are you know, trying to be ambitious, or you can also deal with the civil wars, the fringes that are always hard to control, both for <clears throat> the Persians, but also for the Romans much of the time with their threat of civil war. It's not breakaway in the sense of independence movements, but it's rivals appearing. Mm -hmm. So there's almost a comfort in the fact that it's simpler dealing with the other empire, but it does seem to be self-imposed restraint. And that there's a pragmatic calculation that for the Romans to try and conquer the Parthians would involve years and years of warfare, vast um, amounts of manpower, vast amounts of resources, and it's going to be hard because both the Parthians and the Persians are tough to fight. Mm -hmm. And the conditions of this area, you know, it was all very well for Alexander to charge around, but no one else has done that since then. Um, so they can calculate, and the Parthians and the Persians can look at the Romans and see exactly the same thing. They can send their embassies to say, we are the successors of the Achaemenids. We want all the land up to the Mediterranean. And a couple of times, a king of kings will go and he will bathe in the sea. Mm -hmm. But they don't stay there because they know they can't. So it's, a, it's an important element to add to all that debate about ideology, sense of empire, sense of aggression, sense of glory. Because very clearly in these, this situation for centuries, the calculation is far more pragmatic. Hmm. And that suggests that both sides do know far more about the other than we tend to allow in the, the very negative sense of, you know, ignorant people in the ancient world who didn't understand maps and didn't have them, um, and who were just obsessed with glory and Aristea mm -hmm. and all this sort of stuff. Um, they're not, that's not how they act. And that's not just as a modern commentator imposing on it. You look at what actually happens. Mm -hmm. This is very clearly how they're acting. 
It's 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 self-imposed, almost mutually agreed, mutually understood restraint on each side. Yes, we'll fight a war. Even the, the, the war with Nero, you know, they're, they're fighting, but they're not fighting everywhere. It's basically focused around Armenia, mm -hmm. and it's more between their allies than it is direct involvement of the armies of either side, which means, yes, it's important. Yes, it's about status. So that whole symbolism where the new uh, the king of kings brother who becomes the king of Armenia travels all the way to Rome mm -hmm. and abases himself before Nero but has wears a sword but has it nailed into his scabbard to show that I could fight but I'm choosing not to I'm mm -hmm. choosing to do this people have said oh well that's a great defeat you know it's Armenia's become a, a Pers uh, sorry Parthian satellite state it's not really the case it's far more complicated than that and it works for both sides this was actually an achievement hmm. That's very interesting, you know, how we, we avoid the pitfalls of succumbing to either ancient rhetoric about universal <laughs> empire um, or our own, you know, Manichaean Cold War tendencies mm. <laughs> to see things in terms of blocks. Um, but I wanted to close by thinking about the great exception to these self-imposed limits, the final war of the seventh century, um, when, you know, Heraclius and Khusra II fight to the death, essentially, over this generation-long conflict that almost destroys, well, actually ultimately does destroy one empire and it destroys Rome itself. Um, how did things change so fundamentally for this war? You know, what, what led to this, uh, essentially, this total warfare erupting between the two old frenemies of Rome and Persia? It's, it's really, I mean, they have fought a lot throughout right. the 6th century. Um, far more often, the, the 5th century AD is remarkably peaceful, and it suits both empires for this to be the case. But it does show that these powers can live next to each other for long periods, which is largely what they've done in the 1st and lesser extent in the second century AD, mm -hmm. but the warfare was a lot less frequent. But it changes, and part of it is a reflection of just how similar become. Their resources have got to be on a similar scale. The way their armies fight, relying overwhelmingly on cavalry that the Romans still use more infantry to support, mm -hmm. has become very similar. And the sort of numbers they can muster have become very similar, or can commit to a field army. You've even, you know, it's not there in the literary sources, but this um, archaeologically, where you look at the Gorgan Wall and this thing by, by mm -hmm. the Caspian Sea, the Persians are doing the sort of frontier defense systems that we think of as quintessentially Roman, that in fact the Romans don't have the money and resources to do anymore, but the Persians <laughs> are doing that level of organization, that level of permanent, professional, for want of a better word, soldiers in your thing. The, the state is very organized. It's, it's, it's very bureaucratic. The power of the emperor, king of kings, they have, have become more and more alike in every respect by this time. And the diplomacy has gone beyond the calling each other brother to more direct intervention. I mean, you have the case under Justin and Justinian where there's talk of a Persian king of kings wants um, his son to succeed him, his favored son, so wants the Roman emperor to adopt him mm -hmm. and back the claim, where um, Roman princes are being protected given a Persian guardian. And you have the situation where a Persian king of kings is thrown out of Persia goes to the Roman Empire and is restored to power uh, by the Emperor Morris with military backing of Roman troops that go into Persia, intervene in a Persian civil war. So the sort of thing that, in a sense, Crassus has been wanting to do that the Romans have done lots of times before, uh, um, sorry, is happening again, but you end up with a Persian king of kings who is referring to the Roman Emperor as his father. So there is then a personal element when that Roman emperor is murdered in one of the coups that the Romans are mm -hmm. still prone to, if less prone to than they had been in earlier periods. 
it's it's hard to know how much of this is is, is a personal thing, where there is genuine rage on the part of Kuzro to say, well, you know, you've killed the man who supported me, who saved me, and you're not going to get away with that. The Romans, however, seem to be thinking, as they've always done, that civil wars are the really dangerous bit, because their active defense in the early years of Khosrow's campaigns is, is fairly weak, and he systematically sort of dismantles the system of frontier fortresses and cities that make it hard to do more than go in, extort some money from these places, sack a few of them, mm -hmm. get paid to go away, and then negotiate, and we do a deal where you get more than you got last time, and that's that's how the treaties have worked for a long time. And on the whole, the Romans have been paying money to the Persians, but it, you know, the amounts have varied and what it's for and how it's delivered have varied. The Romans are so busy with the rise, turn out to be the rise of Heraclius, but they're not sure that's going to happen for a while, that the Persians win these victories. And by the time Heraclius is established as an emperor and is trying to make peace, there is this huge break in tradition in that the Persians not only refuse to negotiate, but they arrest or execute Roman ambassadors. Now, this sort of thing, you know, ambassadors have always been sacred in most cultures in the ancient world, and doing things to them has been um, a really bad idea as a rule. It's tended to provoke retaliation on a large scale. And the striking thing, in, even when they've been fighting most of the way through the 6th century, is they've been talking virtually every year, at least once. Mm -hmm. Everybody keeps trying to negotiate. And one of the reasons the wars go on so long is it, it's... You know, it's a bit like people raising the stakes in a poker game. They, they, they don't want to put that last hand down, but they think they can just get a bit more of an advantage. They can win bigger, mm -hmm. and they're willing to risk it. And as long as one player is doing that, you've, you've got to both decide to, um, you know, to end the war. So they've gone on. Once you stop talking, it suggests that something very different is happening and that your ambitions have got much more broader, much more permanent than ever before. And again, it's hard to know whether for Khosrow II, this is a sort of something he's always thought about, always dreamed about. Yes, I had to be restored to power by the Romans, but I will show the Romans, I will win in the end, and I will be king of kings of all the world. Or whether one success follows another and he starts thinking, well, hang on a minute, <laughs> what can we do now? Well, you know, Again, a little bit like the negotiation without the negotiation. Mm -hmm. Let's see, if I do this bit more, then what can I get? What sort of peace can I make? Can I make Persia so much stronger than it's ever been that people will forget that I was the king who had to be restored by the Romans and remember mm -hmm. me as the greatest king of kings that has ever lived? So they begin to overrun Roman provinces and parts of Syria and then Egypt. And because the Romans are so weak at this stage, they are unable to face them and they're still focusing on the civil war. And then you have the negotiations with um, the Avars and others to attack the Romans from the other side. So it looks as if for a while, a king of kings has thought, actually, I can destroy Rome, or I can reduce it to such a fragment of itself that it will never again be a rival, and you know, my glory will live forever. So I think there's an, a lot of opportunism in this, and it's partly that that leads to his downfall, because if he'd negotiated earlier, he probably could have taken a large part of the Eastern Roman Empire and kept it permanently, um, or at least in the longer term. But because he pushes the stakes and because when the Avars come to try and capture Constantinople, the Sasanians don't, are unable to cross the Dardanelles. They don't reach them. They watch from a distance. Again, the Romans start mistreating Sasanian envoys just as um, the Sasanians have mistreated theirs. Everything is much more brutal. One of the striking things, though, about all of this is that Heraclius starts appealing to his men in a very religious way. Mm -hmm. And he starts to tell them that 
to die in battle against the Persians, to protect our empire, to protect Rome, to fight to the last, is effectively martyrdom. You know, you get all the prizes in heaven that someone who suffered for their faith would have got in the past. It is a very sort of clear precursor of the Islamic idea of the faithful winning their place in paradise. And what's striking is that Heraclius tells his men this when he's fighting against the Persians, but he doesn't tell it to them a few years later when they're fighting against the Islamic armies that are winning even faster victories uh, because the Romans are so weak at this point. So that struggle isn't seen in religious terms. But this, you seem to have got to the point where finally, as you say, these two empires that have been fairly stable for a long time, they fought, but they've accepted the other there, have got to the point where it has become life or death, at least as far as the Romans are concerned, and where Khosrow thinks he can extinguish them forever. So that it is far more serious, far more bitter. And that, that's a sign of just how desperate the Romans were. But they win through Persian exhaustion and the fact that um, they sort of haven't lost. Heraclius is able to win a few small victories that just means he keeps going and then start to win greater victories, but they're greater in terms of prestige than anything else. But it, it's overstretched. The, the Persians can no longer have enough troops in the right place, led in the right way. And they're overconfident because the Romans have been beaten so easily in recent years that they lose a few key battles and then Khosrow is discredited. There's a palace coup that leads to instability within the Persians. And they, they, they don't really have the military might to do what Khosrow is trying to do. You know, and it, it's that tipping point whether that you see with Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan, where they can do mm -hmm. really well for a while. And then suddenly the wheels fall off because deep down the industry, the economy isn't there to support it if the other sides keep fighting and keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and you will lose in the end. And that can happen quite quickly, as it, as it in fact does. Hmm. Right, and so, right, in, in the wake, of course, of this cataclysmic final war, both empires are exhausted, leaving the ground ripe for the Islamic conquests, which fundamentally reshape the entire Near East. Uh, and bring a, a close, oh, sorry, go ahead. Hmm. I should say, yes, it, it's, it's incredibly quick. The Persian Empire is gone in a generation. Right, right. Um, and the Roman Empire is so small that mm -hmm. it's it's really is just one more medieval kingdom by this point. You know, all the and all the dreams of Justinian of retaking most mm -hmm. of the Mediterranean, all of that has gone. But for many of these cities, especially early on, they're being occupied for the second time in living memory. You know, the Persians have been here before. You don't really put up too much of a fight against the Arab armies because they're they're treating you fairly well. They're not too oppressive. They're respecting your religion. And they are monotheists like you. They're not as alien as the Zoroastrian Persians. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's an element where it's all a bit easier at first. And of course, you know, again, it's one of those flukes a little bit like explaining why Ardashir and Shapa <laughs> are so militarily good. The early Arab armies seemed to find not just well-motivated soldiers, but some very gifted commanders. And both the other sides, the, the big empires, are so exhausted. Mm -hmm. And they've, they haven't taken this new threat seriously. The Romans and Persians have got quite good at fighting each other because they've had loads of practice. But fighting someone who does something differently is just a bit of a shock. And they are wrong-footed. They don't know how to cope. And it, it's one of those snowball effects where mm -hmm. it just keeps gathering momentum and momentum. And that's that's it. But it, the end comes remarkably quickly. And it, it's, it's, it's a consequence of the rivalry between the two, but it isn't part of it in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have some wonderful comments at the end, thinking in the long term, whether this rivalry weakened both empires. And I believe you said that it's it's not, not quite so simple. You know, where in a sense that, you know, having the enemy was the... The wetsuit against which they they sharpened, you know, both their military uh, techniques, you know, their their diplomatic uh, uh, appeals, you know, having that stable rival was almost a, 
don't know, became part of the, the mental landscape for both empires. They couldn't imagine themselves without. And then suddenly, right, the props are kicked away by the Arabs and the whole world, you know, falls to pieces and is remade. It's a, yes, it's, it's, it's an enemy you don't take seriously. Right, and you, right. you don't know and you don't understand. You don't know what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, is that, you know, both... Both empires, the last few years of Sasanian Persia is infighting, very short mm-hmm. reigns. For the first time ever, they have two women rulers. And the first is, you know, it's presented on the coin openly as a woman. The second one doesn't last long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just got ma- coins of a man, clearly, that they've just changed the name on. Um, but it shows how you, you've rotted away. You've, you've overstretched and that last gasp has really weakened the system and the successive generations. There's even, there's probably a cumulative effect of those wars of the sixth century have become too frequent mm-hmm. and peace can become a habit and so can war. So you're, both sides are losing resources they can't really spare because they've got other threats. But it is that it, it's, it has on the whole, been good because both sides have prospered through trade. I mean, that's the other thing mm-hmm. that's been happening all the way through is that goods are coming overland through the Parthian, then Persian Empire to get to Rome. They're going around in the ocean. There are uh, Persian um, merchants who are active in India, Sri Lanka, trying to corner the market there, rivalry with Roman merchants, you know, down along the east coast of Africa. This, this sort of these two empires allow this wider economic world to, to survive that benefits everybody but eventually comes crashing down when there's no longer the market for it. So mm-hmm. a lot of this is good. So it, it is right. I mean, it's a very, it's a, perhaps a very Roman idea in the, the way they thought, well, you know, when we destroyed Carthage, suddenly we didn't have an enemy, so we declined. Mm-hmm. You know, you need someone to sort of keep you up, up, to, up to scratch. Um, and there's some truth in that always, but it's, it's also, again, it is complicated. It's not, there aren't simple, oh, well, they, they weaken each other and then along come the Arabs. Because that also, it turns the the revolution created by the Arab armies into something that's just almost a coincidence of other people's weakness. And mm-hmm. that's part of it. But it's rather like the, the Parthian Empire being created in the first place, the Roman Empire being created in the first place. These things don't just happen. You have to be doing something pretty well mm-hmm. to succeed as spectacularly as that and to last as long as that. So it, it's, it's always two-sided. You know, It isn't just a simple, you win because... Um, you're great and the other side's bad. It, it's it's in between. Yeah, well, that's a great way to end this up, that nothing in history is so simple, let alone a seventh century long rivalry, which encompassed so much. Well, uh, Dr. Goldsworthy, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. For, for, for me personally, I'm sure for all of the listeners of Till the Tilden Zone podcast as well. Uh, Roman Persia is available for pre-order now and will come out this autumn. Uh, I'm looking forward very much to seeing the, the, the final edition. Um, in the meantime, of course, there are many other books by Dr. Goldsworthy, uh, Biography of Caesar, uh, Anthony and Cleopatra, and many, many others. You can see on his website and anywhere books are sold. Um, so again, uh, Dr. Goldsworthy, thank you um, for appearing on the Tolenstone podcast. Once again, thanks for having me. It's been great fun. Oh, very much likewise. And to everyone tuning in, uh, thanks for listening.